Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Let's get in it. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They were furious. Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I have a question I want to ask you today. Are you hungry to be great in God's kingdom? That's about the response I thought I would get. It's not a question we kind of think about too often, particularly because of maybe the sway in our culture right now, because when we think about Christianity and we think about belonging to Christ, we often think about humility, but we confuse false humility with actual humility. And so I want to ask this question again. How many of you long to be spiritually mature, growing and good and great in God's kingdom? Like genuinely, you're like, you know what? I actually have a plan to grow in Christ. I don't want to stay the same. I don't want to shrink back. I actually have it in mind to be better tomorrow than I was today, to be more fully committed, more fully devoted, more fully righteous than I was in the past. We want to be great in Christ. Now, I've taught this passage dozens of times, maybe more than that, but I have never felt like the Lord showed me what he showed me this time as I was kind of looking through this passage. And my prayer is that maybe you have heard the passage a thousand times. Maybe your ears have been perked by this a thousand times, and it's really easy for us to just kind of shift into autopilot right now, right? Because we know this. You guys know this. We're super familiar with this. But I believe that Jesus wants to show us something new and maybe challenge us in a way that we wouldn't anticipate Jesus would challenge us. This passage carries an incredible amount of importance because we have lost sight of the invitation to be great. And Jesus does, in fact, invite you to be great. I don't care how big and mighty you are or small and mousy. Jesus invites you to be great in his kingdom. We've set the bar so low in our culture that most of us really are just satisfied to kind of stumble through life in the same old patterns, 
stumble through life in the same old way of sin and just barely making it with Jesus. But contrary to our common beliefs, Jesus isn't against you being great. He is for it. But he actually longs to expose us to the kind of greatness that gets heaven's attention. He longs to expose us to what makes him great. And it's possible today that some of us who are sitting in here, uh, we have been on the sidelines of our own faith experience with Jesus because we can't seem to grow. I mean, some of you have been following Jesus for decades and you're just not growing, if you're honest. You're frustrated, in fact, because you just aren't changing. We just stay in the same roots and routines over and again. But Jesus here actually offers us an incredible roadmap in growing in greatness. And it is serving others in public and in secret. If you want to grow in your maturity in Christ, Jesus says that one of the key ingredients to becoming more in Him and greater in Him, and I might even say um, promoted in the kingdom, is by you using your gifts to serve. You know, I fear that most of us don't actually know how to grow in Christ. One of the deep frustrations I had in Pentecostal churches growing up is that we always wanted an encounter at the altar, but it was always divorced from how I lived my life Monday through Saturday. I had no idea how to translate what was happening here to there. I had no idea how to translate what Jesus is speaking here on the floor on a Sunday into my workplace on Monday or into my relationship with my brother on a Tuesday. And somehow there was something broken in that for us. And I think for many of us, we live with this broken sense of how to grow in Christ. And my, uh, my fear is that we are just becoming big, fat, spoon-fed Bible babies. You know what I mean? Like, it's totally normal if you spoon-feed a baby when it can't, like, lift its own spoon. It's another thing if a mom is spoon-feeding a baby when they're 12. There's a problem. I remember I was in a foreign country one time. My dad and I went on this trip. We were doing a setup trip for our church who was traveling across the ocean. And we got over there, and there was, like, a five-year-old kid who was still breastfeeding, okay? And, and in that culture, it was totally normal. But in my culture, watching a five-year-old leave the room because she was hungry and announce it to us was startling. <laughs> Sometimes in church, I have the feeling that we're still spoon-feeding people who have like arms and stuff. <laughs> and there's this thing in the kingdom of God where God actually holds you responsible to do something with what you're receiving, If I took Casey this morning and glued a hose pipe into his mouth and turned it all the way on and plugged his nose, how many of you know the water would find a way out? Anybody? Is everybody alive? Are you okay? I'm really concerned about those in this section. (laughs) There's some kind of freezing agent that's caused you to sit perfectly still. How many of you know the water would find a way out? I don't know if it would come out of your ears, your eyes. I'm not sure where the water would escape the first. But if I plugged all the holes and, and just... Uh, seamed you up with a hose pipe, it's going to get out. How many of you know the gospel is not meant to be a one-way thing? That when the gospel gets in us and it starts to move through us, it should find its way out of us. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't spill over, man, I would challenge whether or not that's actually the gospel at all. Jesus shows us in Mark chapter 10 that there is a way that leads to greatness in the kingdom of God, and it's called service. Here in verse 32, Jesus is driving with passion and focus toward Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. 
Isaiah 53, 5 clarifies what this purpose is. That He would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins and iniquities. And the punishment that will bring us peace was placed on Him and by His wounds we are healed. This is the purpose of Jesus, born to die. And sensing the finality of His purpose and what lay ahead, Jesus once again pulls His best friends and His disciples to the side and He warns them about what's about to happen. Verse 33, He says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. And if the disciples could hit some divine pause button, they would have right there. Right? This is a moment of celebration for them. He has just said, we're going to the capital city and God in flesh is going to enter in. And what they're thinking is, yes, yes, finally, finally. Go tell the bigwigs and the politicians who you are. Let's go to the capital. Let's get this party started. Jesus is going to take over Israel. Here we go. Remember, when they hear this, when they hear Son of Man, their minds automatically, they're here in Daniel chapter 7, where it says here, Daniel is beside the water, and he looks up and he says, and I saw one who was like a Son of Man, which is just another phrase for a human being that was exalted into God's presence, led by God into His presence, and seated in majesty and authority and power, and His kingdom will never end. Jesus says, I am that Son of Man, and I am going to the the D.C. to be inaugurated king. And what do they say? Goody, goody. And then Jesus says something that they never thought he would say. And here's what the inauguration will look like. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him. They will hand him over to Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will whip him. And they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise. You you can imagine the deflation in this moment. That's why we saw earlier in the book of Mark when Peter hears Jesus warning them about his death and he says, you will never die. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. They're so confused because this picture of Messiah, of God being inaugurated, king of the earth, looks so very different than what they had imagined. Not only does Jesus not ascend to the throne, but he's going to be betrayed, handed over to sinners. This is the kind of kingdom that you're building, Jesus. He's going to be mocked and spit on and whipped and killed. You can imagine their shock and surprise. But this morning, I actually think that the disciples get it. When I read through this passage of Scripture, I think they're finally hearing what Jesus is saying because it's in this moment of revelation that James and John ask an odd and an even offensive question. Now, you've got to admit, this is a funny exchange. Jesus says, I am going to Jerusalem to die. And James and John say, hey, Jesus, will you give us whatever we want? And he says, what do you want? <laughs> you can imagine how like, comedic this is. And they say, we want to be on your right and your left in glory. Think about that. Jesus is talking about suffering and dying. And here they are saying, Jesus, we want to be on the throne with you in glory. You're going to suffer and die, but we want to be in majesty with you. Now, I've always read this story and been very judgmental toward James and John. How many of you would confess, you read this and you go, idiots. 
idiots. They don't know their moment. They seriously are missing the point. Jesus is talking about God is going to suffer, and they say, we want to be glorified with you. And I've read this a thousand times and thought the very same thing. These are two completely disconnected, bumbling, self-absorbed, power-hungry people. But it struck me this time. They had just heard Jesus say that he's the Son of Man. They just heard him say he's God who is going to God. They just heard him say that he's going to be betrayed and tortured and murdered. They're not ill-informed. They don't, it's not like they're missing the point. The third thing that I noticed was that Jesus doesn't actually correct their ambition. It's really weird, isn't it? Now, he does come back and he says some things, but he doesn't correct what they're asking. And that challenges my perspective on this passage. And it challenges my perspective on how we view greatness as people today and how we put this thing to work in our lives. See, the disciples aren't ill-informed. They are saying, Jesus, we believe you are who you say, and we believe you are going to God to be glorified. We are cool with that. We get it. All we're asking is, can we sit with you when you get there? Can we be where you're at? Can we go all the way with you, Jesus? And Jesus' response is really interesting. Can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink? You want the glory, but are you ready to suffer? Interesting. That line about drinking from the same cup is from the, some of the books of the prophets. It's a metaphor for God's righteous judgment against the wicked. Jesus says, I am coming to drink that cup. I am God speaking against the wickedness of the earth. And how do I do it? I do it by consuming the cup myself. The payment of all that was done against me, I will consume it myself. Jesus says, this is the cup I've come to drink. And we have to understand this, that in this moment, Jesus is modeling what authority and power look like in God's kingdom. The Son of Man must suffer. That sounds completely backward and upside down. God must suffer. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. And in this moment, it is shocking that James and John don't back down. They simply respond, yeah, we can. Can you imagine, Caleb, for real, if Jesus was like, hey, are you going to do what I'm going to do? And they say, yes. <laughs> what? Can you imagine being there in that moment? They are unapologetically zealous and ambitious about being great in Jesus' kingdom. They don't, they're not apologizing. They're not playing out false humility. They're saying, yes, we're going to do the same stuff. They're toying with that line, and you guys know people like this, between confident and cocky, right? Like, like Jesus, this is what we're aiming at. We're not backing off of it. We can and will do what you do, and we're going to be with you. This is what we want. They are willing to ask. Hear this. If you're taking notes, this is important. They're willing to ask for things that are offensive to others who don't have the kind of relationship that they do with Jesus. Has your kid ever asked you for something that if another kid asked you for, you would be like, who is this kid? What a little punk. Why are you coming and asking me for that, right? Like my kids can ask me for almost anything, and I will smile and laugh maybe, but I'm not going to get frustrated. I will give them whatever. But if some stranger comes up and says, hey, can I have your car? I'll be like, no, get out of here. You know what I mean? We don't have 
this kind of thought about Jesus. But James and John are standing here before Jesus who says he's going to suffer, and they are willing to ask for something that seems offensive to everyone else because of the kind of relationship they've cultivated with Jesus. And Jesus is not mad about it. He's not frustrated. It doesn't bother him. I actually think he smiles. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I think that Jesus looks at them and is so amused at the level of faith being cultivated in them. It's the same spirit as Peter who's standing in the boat and they think a ghost is out on the water and he says, Jesus, if that's you out walking on the water, call me to come out there to you. What? Have you guys read that and just been like, what are you talking about? Peter, what are you talking about? Jesus is walking toward the boat. Why this moment? How ridiculous. Who do you think you are that Jesus is going to overturn the natural order so that you can have some fantastic experience? What does Jesus say? Come. Are you, is anybody with me? I struggle here. I, we have so lowered the bar of what it means to walk with Jesus and believe what he said and actually be a part of God's kingdom that we look at people who long to be great and have an ambition to grow in Jesus as being proud and arrogant. And Jesus is not frustrated. He is He is entertained. He is thrilled. I think his heart is satisfied. He sees some people who get it. I don't know if you've ever had a close relationship where you can ask that person for a huge favor and you don't feel bad, but you would feel terrified to ask somebody else. I remember one time we were walking in from school. It was me and my twin brother Evan and my older brother Brent. and We barreled in after school at the end of the day, and Evan had just been talking about music just out of nowhere. And this is like we were young teenagers. Evan was squirrely. Like he just didn't have a thing that he really loved and took, took to. Uh, and the story goes that my dad was sitting in his chair that afternoon. He was waiting for us to get home. And he was praying and he said, God, give me a key for Evan's life. Please, God, what is something that Evan will like make Evan thrive? And God said, buy him a bass guitar. Not out loud. Just in his heart, there was a deep impression, and it was so clear that my dad was like, I think I'm going crazy. Buy him a bass guitar. We barreled through the front door, and Evan said, Dad, can I have a bass? And my dad, who never, he's a lovely man, he never would just say yes. He was almost always like a 90% no kind of guy. You guys, I'm that parent now, and I'm like, i got to fix this. Something's broken in here. Uh, he was a 90% no kind of guy. He said, okay, go buy one. And I remember standing beside him. It was like we had struck gold. We were all like, oh, oh, go get it, man. <laughs> but I realized in that moment, something was really special. And I was like, can I, can, I, can, I have a, can I have a keyboard? Can we get a horse? Can I have a four-wheeler? You know, like we just, we had struck gold, man. We just went hard for the like, next couple of minutes. Like, what can dad say yes to? <laughs> I didn't realize there was like a divine word on Evan's life in that moment. I just knew we had all struck gold. Sure enough, I got a keyboard out of that. <laughs> Did I learn keyboard? Absolutely not, but I got a keyboard. Why? Because one person's permission increases everyone's faith. The permission to dream and to hear from God, the permission to step in and to ask something great and to see that fulfilled, man, it did something. Suddenly, I had this faith that was permissive. It gave me permission to step in and to ask greater things with Jesus because I saw him do something for Evan. 
James and John have no problem asking Jesus with boldness if they can sit with him in glory because of the intimacy and the friendship they have with him. What does it say that the most audacious, impetuous three disciples are Jesus' best friends? Have you thought about that? The guys that I'm least likely, the ones who are like, can we call down fire from heaven and consume your enemies? I read that and I'm like, what a bunch of losers. Like, I don't want anything to do with those guys. And Jesus says, my boys. These hot-headed, crazy guys who want nothing more than to be with me and to see me glorified. Peter, who's hacking off people's ears in one moment, but standing on water beside Jesus the next. We have softened. We have softened what God wants. We have weakened what God wants to the point that we don't even know how to be bold in our faith. We don't know that God wants you to actually be bold. Some of you in here are naturally bold. Don't let that be squashed and go out because we want it soft and palatable. You know who's palatable? Judas. You know who's palatable? Thomas. You know who's palatable? The other ten who are indignant on the sidelines ticked off at what these guys are willing to ask. When was the last time that we cultivated that kind of boldness? Because friends, my my feeling is that many of us never attempt to be great in the kingdom because we're just really insecure with God. It has nothing to do with humility. It has everything to do with us not feeling like we can actually ask such a thing. I don't know how he feels about me or I don't know how to relate to him. So we never ask for big audacious things. But here's the trick, man. We, We start calling it humility. We try to make it a spiritual virtue to have no spiritual ambition. And that creates completely apathetic, weak churches. No ambition to go after anything with Jesus. We don't actually care to see Columbus saved. We don't care to see people healed dramatically of their sicknesses. We don't care to see fatherlessness quenched in our communities. We don't care. We just want to pray weak prayers and have some spiritual experience and then go home. Jesus is perfectly okay with you asking wild, bold, audacious prayers to be a part of more than maybe you even feel comfortable with. See, the reality is that often we just don't know God well enough to ask. You know, there's this progression in the scriptures that I'm really like infatuated with. There's these descriptions of how we relate to God. He he talks about us being slaves to God. Have you heard that? Paul sometimes says, I'm a slave to God. And then there's other times where he says, I'm, I'm a servant to God. Oh, that's, that's a little nicer, right? You read that, you're like, oh, yeah, that's nicer. I'm not, I'm not under the, the weight. I'm not bound to him in the same way, but I'm, I'm serving him. But then there's this, this new revelation that, that God actually calls you brothers, sisters. So hold on, I, I was a slave And now I'm a servant, and now you're calling me brother or sister. And then you get into Galatians, and it says you're not just a brother and a sister who's like sharing in this. You are a child who's the heir of all of it. Storm, you're an heir. You went from slave to heir. And then you get into Corinthians, and he says you're a friend. Do you feel that transition? 
I wonder this morning if you were to take an inventory of your own life and how you see your affection and your intimacy with Jesus, if you feel more like a slave or a friend, if you feel like a servant or like a child who is always on the receiving end of the gifts and the kindness and the goodness of God. He's giving us permission to get close. Jesus is inviting us into an everyday kind of intimacy with him, right? There are things that a son will ask that a stranger never would. There are things that a spouse would ask that a stranger never would. Jesus is inviting you into something that is so intimate and so close. How many of you have said some things to your family members that you would never say to anybody else? Because out of intimacy, out of closeness, out of this this feeling that I am in a rooted relationship, I can say things sometimes to Chrissy that I would never say outside of the house. Are you with me? Because of that tightness. Because she knows I'm not going anywhere. She can say some stuff to me. (laughs) I didn't mean for that to be comedic. You know, I'm ashamed to say that I've spent more time like the ten than the two. I'm more like the competitive, frustrated ones on the sidelines measuring themselves against James and John. I'm more like them, not asking a whole lot, not expecting a whole lot. I'm more like them often than I am like the two who are so audacious. They don't care at all about what those ten other people are thinking. They are just wanting to be great with Jesus. Years ago, I traveled to Swaziland, Africa. Um, When I was there, I had one of the most dramatic shifts in my life. I was there when President Obama became president. It was like we found out in South Africa that uh, President Obama had been elected. When we were there, we were traveling to these hospitals all through South Africa and Swaziland. And there was one particular one where we went in, and it looked like a dilapidated structure. Like if it had been America, nobody would have been allowed in. But when we walked in, it was a children's hospital, and every room and every ward was covered with children who had been burned from head to toe. And I remember being overwhelmed, not just at the wounds and the sights and the smells of kids who had suffered so much. I remember being overwhelmed at the silence. These kids were suffering. And I turned to the pastor who was with us, and I said, Pastor, why are they not crying? I don't understand. Why is there no feeling of emotion or remorse or pain? And he said, why cry out when there's no hope? In that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit say, Grant, that is exactly how you live your life with me. You actually live as a determinist. You believe that whatever's going on is okay, and you'll suffer through it and get to the other side, and then you'll just deal with that. And he said, you don't even cry out anymore because you have no hope that I'm listening and I'll respond. Man, it messed me up. I left there, I left that place, and I realized that I had robbed myself and God of an intimate relationship. Too consumed with the idea that he might not answer or I might be asking the wrong question, so I would never even say anything. And I missed out on the fact that God is an intimate father who loves to hear me cry out. Man, he loves it. He loves to hear you cry out. Some of you have been in this space where you don't feel like God is listening or you're not even willing to cry out anymore because you are afraid that you are going to lose out or that he won't say anything. And then what does that say about me or him? And God gave me new courage to cry out. And in the months after that, we began to pray with faith. God hears and he listens. 
And in the next year, we saw more people dramatically saved and healed and set free. And it wasn't because anything different had happened to me. God just reminded me he listens. He loves to hear us ask. And some of you are here today and you have completely stopped asking because it's safer. And it's just safer to not ask, isn't it? Because then I don't have to be crushed if something doesn't work out the way that I want. Friend, don't be concerned if you are misguided in your prayer. God is good and faithful and will lead you the right way forward. But he wants to establish something in intimacy and trust with you that could be misunderstood by everybody else. But you know that you have a one-way conversation, an open door for God to hear you and to respond. It was in that same season where one of our friends was murdered. And uh, me and my buddy Rob, I remember we started to talk and to pray. And one day we just... Landed on this thought. What if God raised this guy from the dead? I promise you, I've never had that thought before then. And rarely after. People come and go, they die, and we never even think about resurrection. We just mourn. You with me? And then I started thinking, what is it that we actually believe? (laughs) What, What is this thing that we read and declare and talk about on Sundays, and then we just go to funerals and act like there's no power in resurrection life? And guys, we we didn't see this young man raised up, but we were committed to the task. We were praying and fasting and believing. I remember one day I went to lunch and Rob was supposed to come with me. And I called him and I said, hey, where are you at? And he was whispering. And I said, why are you whispering? And he said, because I'm at the morgue. And I said, what are you doing at the morgue without me? (laughs) He was trying to get in there and lay hands on the body. Was it a little misguided? Maybe. Can I tell you something? There is permission to ask big, audacious things when you have an intimate relationship with Jesus. To believe and trust for things that are past us, abnormal even, because we trust and believe that God is who he says he is. James and John have caught hold of something here. They, they, they have the revelation that you can pursue things with Jesus that may be a little misguided, but you have permission to ask in intimacy, even if you can't in insecurity. Verse 42, and Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God is not opposed to greatness, but in God's upside-down kingdom, greatness is grown and revealed by serving others and becoming like Jesus. Do Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Get to serving. Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Move to places of hiddenness where nobody sees and serve to meet the needs of those around you. He shows us a little bit about how worldly authority works and how that's different from the kingdom. Look at what he says. He says that rulers and great men in the world actually force authority and leadership on others. They use what is given to them to benefit them, right? Or maybe they actually use what's given to them to benefit others, but the way that they do it is crushing and oppressive. The word used in the Greek here for that word to lord it over is this word katakairo. It means to subdue. It's actually the picture of someone chasing you down, pinning you to the ground, and yelling, I'm in charge. That's what worldly leadership's like. 
Worldly authority says, you're going to listen to me because I'm the boss and that's all that matters. And if you try to step out of line, I will crush you. Are you with me? Anybody got a picture of your boss flashing in your head right now? All right, I hope not. Jesus says that's not at all what the kingdom is like. But when God exposes you to what he's like, he actually looks like a servant. Hmm. Is that what we think we're going to see when God actually exposes what he's like? That Jesus would come and pull off the camouflage and what you see is someone with a towel who's ready to wash your feet? Is your picture of God someone who crushes you when you do the wrong thing? It's interesting, in John chapter 13, we get a really beautiful picture of just what God is like. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. Listen to the context. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So Jesus knows he is all-powerful as a human on earth. He can do anything. So if you're Jesus, you're just squishing Simon's head, I mean, Judas's head, you know, like from across the table, right? Are you with me? The betrayer. <laughs> Filled with power from on high. What do you do with it? It says, Jesus knows that the Father has given him all power, that everything, uh, that, that he had come from God, that he was returning from God, or to God. And so he got up from the mill, and he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does God look like? He looks like a servant. He looks like somebody who's in a room full of people, and he can tell them to do whatever he wants. He takes it upon himself to lower himself and to serve. Not because it's a disguise, because that's actually who he is. John Ortberg says that this moment is not Jesus putting on a disguise as a servant, right? Majesty acting like a servant. He's actually exposing what majesty looks like in heaven. What is it that God is like? He's like a servant. And if we want to cultivate greatness in God, God calls us in the same way to live for others to succeed. What would it be like if a room full of people, if a generation of people took it into their hearts that our lives are merely for the success of the next generation? That our lives are merely for the success of those who are around us? Because if we want to be great in God, we have to live for others. God is searching intently for those that he can give authority to. But friends, listen to me. Promotion only comes by way of service and sacrifice. Are you with me? Are you with me? The promotion that we crave, the greatness that God invites us into, it only comes by way of service and sacrifice. Jesus is looking at James and John and saying, if you want to come up onto the seat of glory, you have to put on a towel. The only way to get up here is to go down there. The only way to increase here is to decrease everywhere else. He's he's looking in a generation of people who for us, everything is self-centered and about us. And he is saying, who will live in a way that is completely about others? 
Who will live in a way where you are washing feet, where you are meeting needs, where you are fighting for those who are sick and dying? Who will do it? If you want to be great, your life cannot be about you anymore. Right? Even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. I want to close with just three things that keeps us from serving like Jesus. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first one is busyness. What keeps us from serving? It's not always something that's just deeply broken inside of us. Often, it's just that we are so committed to a speed of life that we cannot actually see other people. I just have all of these thoughts and agendas and ideas. And one of the biggest things that will keep us in our culture from really serving like Jesus is just being too busy. And I think what that means for us is that we have to strive to be interruptible. I don't know about you, I hate being interrupted. Anybody? Uh, and then I had kids, and God said, it's like he peeled the clouds open, and he said, aha, <laughs> I'm going to do this all the time to you. I'm just going to interrupt you all day long. Yes. Am I right? <laughs> we have to strive to be interruptible. Here's the, here's the truth. We cannot be aware of others' needs if we're too busy to see them. Jesus came for the interruptions. What, what if you and I began to cultivate eyes to see people like Jesus? What if we began to see those broken people in situations like he does? That person at work or that broken relationship at home? What does Jesus see? And how do we serve in a way that allows his kingdom to invade in the middle of those places? Are you too busy? It takes time to stop and to serve people. It takes time to actually see people's needs and meet them where they're at. People's time does not work like my time. Have you noticed? Some people move really fast. Some people move really slow. I've got this ongoing joke with my daughter. I yell at her every single morning. Hurry, hurry, hurry. I mean, like the last 20 minutes before we leave for school is just me shouting hurry. I'm scarring her deeply. Okay, this is confession. But you're all perfect, so you don't need to know this. Listen, every single one of us needs to live our life interruptible if we're going to be ready to serve. I look around and see all of you Teen Challenge folks. Man, you got to be interruptible. It is really easy to just treat new students like a new cog in the wheel and forget that they are an image of God given to you and entrusted for a season so that they can regain identity. How about those of you who just work in the marketplace? Man, what does it look like for us to be interruptible so that money is not the biggest thing on our mind, but actually letting the kingdom advance through stopping and allowing people to matter? Secondly, what keeps us from serving like Jesus? A lack of intimacy with Jesus. And if you want to move into a place where you're not growing in greatness and you're not serving other people, just quit reading the Bible and praying. I promise you it's a, it is a fast track to letting your heart just get hard and crusty. I promise you. Now, there are plenty of people who probably don't ever read the Bible and don't pray and are still pretty kind. Have you ever seen those people? I've seen that. But man, if you're in the church and you belong to the Lord and you're not investing in the reservoir around your life, you are going to go dry. And this is convicting for all of us. Why? Because we're so busy. <laughs> 
If you want to stop serving like Jesus, just ignore intimacy with Jesus. There's something profound in the scriptures where Jesus sends the 72 out and he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. Freely you have received, now freely give. This is the equation of intimacy with Jesus, that whatever you have received from him, you are responsible to give away. Have you received grace? You're responsible to give grace. Have you received mercy? You're responsible to receive mercy. Did he give you hope and comfort? You're responsible to take hope and comfort and to just give it out to others. Are you with me? This is the good news of the gospel. But some of us can't serve and give to others because we've not received. We're like Peter at the table saying, no, no, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you're not going to learn how to wash others. If I don't do this for you, you have no grace and gratitude in your life to give, to give away. One of the greatest ways that you can begin to cultivate a life of service and sacrifice is by spending time with Jesus and letting him, letting him love you. If we have walls built up against Jesus, we're never going to let other people in. If I'm stiff-arming Jesus, I'm going to stiff-arm everybody else too. John 13 actually ends with Jesus saying, Now that I have done this for you and I'm your master, you should do it for others. This is the equation. So if we want to grow in service and in sacrifice, we have to allow Jesus to wash us and change us. But thirdly, maybe it's just pride. Maybe it's not so complicated as busyness. Maybe it's not as complicated as we're just not spending daily time with Jesus. Maybe you're doing all those things but maybe you just feel above serving. You know, when I was thinking through this, it just struck me that I'm not above anything that Jesus has done. If, if God himself comes down and he is willing to do these things, who do I think I am to not do these things? What is it that Jesus has done? He's worked blue-collar, sweaty jobs in the dust. He's a low-paying, nonprofit work. Can I get an Amen. Abuse, rejection, homelessness, misunderstanding, washing people's feet, cleaning toilets. He didn't actually clean the toilet. I just put that in. Dying for guilty people. Are you with me? There's nothing that Jesus has done that I should not be willing to do. None of it is above me. Or none of it's below me, sorry. None of it is below me. You know, the Apostle Peter felt so strongly about this that when they went to crucify him, he requested that they crucify him upside down. Because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus. Do you know Jesus like that? That's not even something that would have entered my mind. Sometimes pride makes us feel like we have to fight for ourselves and we are entitled to do things in a way that Jesus never did. And if we're going to serve others, if we're going to lay our lives down and be sacrificial in the way that we live, then we have to realize that it is Jesus Christ living his life through me. That I can do the most mundane and menial thing, and I can do it in gratitude because Christ has saved me. And it's actually Jesus living his life through me. That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. Not Jesus just filling Casey, but Casey is dead so that Christ can live alive through him. Are you with me? It's not just about you getting what you want. It's actually Jesus living his life through you powerfully. 
And service wasn't just what Jesus did, it's who he is. Sacrifice wasn't just what he did, it's who he is. And if we belong to Jesus, we do the same. Because it's his life at work in us. So I just want to close with three questions. And these are for you to wrestle with. If you've got your phone, I'd love for you to just take them down um, and be something for you to pray through, just pray into. Where do I see myself on the spectrum of relationship with God? Am I a slave? Am I a servant? Am I a brother? Am I a child or a friend? How do I see this intimacy thing with God? And why? I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to just kind of unlock some things for us. Where am I at with the Lord? Secondly, am I praying audacious prayers with Jesus? Are you the ten or are you the two? And finally, am I serving others like Jesus? Whoever wants to be great must be your servant and the slave of all. I want to ask you a question. How many of you want to be great in the kingdom? Really? How many of you seek to be holy? You really want to grow in greatness. What does it mean to start serving, leveraging your life for other people? It's, it's a dream come true if people start to say, hey, what church do you go to? Because they look around and they see this cluster of people in the city who are the first to say yes and to serve. First to start meeting needs. The first to meet the needs of the poor and the homeless and the hurting. What if that was the mark of what our church is? Not great services. Not moderate preaching. <laughs> Not any other thing. What if the mark of what it meant to be a Christ follower in Fountain City was those are the most loving people and they always show up to meet the needs of people around them? What if that was the mark of Jesus on our lives? Would you stand with me? I want you to just make the seat where you're standing your altar. It's a place of meeting with God. And right now those questions are being posed to you, are you a friend of God? He calls you friend, but he wants to invite you to grow into this place of intimacy with him where, like James and John, you are willing to ask some audacious things and dream with God. Some of you this morning, God is stirring up some like heavenly desires that almost feel proud. Like, God, I want to see people healed when we pray for them. Are you with me? Lord, we want to see uh, PTSD cured in our time. God, we want to see cancer broken when we pray for people. God, we want to see mental illness healed when we lay hands on people. God, we want to see neighborhoods reformed because of our presence in them. Father, will you show us, will you teach us to do these things? Some of you have this thing stirring in you a a desire that feels bigger and bolder than anything you could dream on your own. And God is putting in you His supernatural desires to do some things. And He's giving you permission to come closer. So Father, we just steady ourselves in Your presence. We ask You, God, that You would teach us to serve in public, 
and in private, before people's eyes and hidden away, Lord. Teach us to be great in your kingdom. Right now, if you're in that place and you just say, that's what I want, would you just open your arms to the Lord? Just, God, please, teach me. Teach me to be a servant like that. Fill us with your spirit and your presence, Lord Jesus. We confess that we are so quick to hold people at an arm's length and to take care of our own needs. But Lord, you said love our neighbor as ourself. And the greatest among us must be the servant to everyone. So Lord, I pray for a room full of servants. I pray, God, for that spirit of servanthood, servant leadership, Lord, where we are the quickest to serve and meet the needs around us. Lord, would you cultivate that spirit in us? God, I pray for a room full of men who have felt like we have to be passive to be Christ followers. And you're calling us to be really active. He is calling out for some bold-hearted, bold-headed men to step forward and to put a dent in the darkness. You can be ambitious with the king. And Jesus delights in you being ambitious to grow with him. Father, I just ask you for that. God, would you cultivate eyes in us to see the needs of people around us? We just surrender our lives to you, Jesus. You alone are worthy. Thank you that you washed us and you made us new. Would you help us, God? Lord, wash our minds. Reshape our hearts, Father. Change us, God, so that we can be made into your image. Lord, I pray that when people see us, even before they know anything about us, God, that they would see your kindness and compassion and love, that they would encounter the goodness of Jesus in us. We give you praise in Jesus' name.